So we've been studying for the last five weeks the book of Esther. And today we're going to, we're going to just bring it together. Next week we'll begin a, a brand new journey. Well, we won't actually because next week is a joint service with the churches for the Kids Club, which starts tomorrow. And while we're at it, we're not meeting this evening either because the building is being set up for the Kids Club work. So what have we seen so far? So if you don't know the book of Esther, here is the book of Esther in 30 seconds. Are you ready? Esther was a young girl who lived in a time when the Jewish people had been taken in captivity. They were living in the kingdom of the Persians. The king was a man called Xerxes. He was not a nice guy. And Esther had won a beauty pageant, for want of a word, and become his new queen. There was a man in the king's court. His name was Haman. He was a particularly unpleasant character. He was completely anti-Semitic. And he wormed his way into the king's court so that he became his advisor, his top advisor. There was another man who was a servant. His name was Mordecai. He was the uncle of Esther. Haman hated Mordecai because he was a Jew. Haman devised a plot that on a certain day, all the Jews would be put to death throughout the kingdom. Now, the kingdom stretched from India to Egypt. It's a massive, massive kingdom. 127 provinces. Millions of people. And in those days, there was a thing called the law of the Medes and Persians. So when the king passed an edict, it could not be undone, not even by the king. That's what was going to happen. So on a certain day, all these Jewish people were going to die. It was a horrific scene. So Mordecai has Esther go to the king. And if you approach the king without the king holding out his scepter, you would be killed. He had to hold out his scepter so that you could enter in. And that's what happened. And she, she shared with the king. And eventually, Haman and his plot was exposed. And he was put to death on a 75-foot pointy pole. Not very nice. Okay, so here we come to the very end of the story now. The Jewish people call this Purim. We come to the end of the story today, and we want to bring out three specific lessons today. Now, we've seen before that God moves sovereignly, even when things don't seem to be happening. He is moving and arranging things. And we've seen so many times, haven't we, that in Romans 8, 28, Paul writes, For we know that in all things God works for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So I want to say to you a bold statement right at the beginning today. Christianity is a triumphant hope. Come on, crack a smile, do something. Christianity is a triumphant hope. Now, some of us need a little bit of oomph in our triumph. It's an incredible thing. Jesus has done an amazing thing. He has set us free. He has promised us eternity in Father's house. Isn't that amazing? He's done that for us. And even if you don't know Jesus in the way I'm talking about, he's done that for you. All you have to do is reach out and accept. 
Christianity is a triumphant hope. Because Jesus has overcome, because he's won, it is settled. God says it, I believe it, it's settled. That's what the story of Esther is all about. In the last chapter of Esther, in Esther 10, verse 1 to 3, this is what we read. King Xerxes imposed a tribute throughout his empire, even to the distant coastlands. His great achievements and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of the Medes and Persians. Mordecai the Jew became the prime minister with authority next to that of King Xerxes himself. And he was very great among the Jews who held him in high esteem because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all their descendants. We've got the same king. We've got the same kingdom. We've got the same 127 provinces. But some things have changed. We have a different queen. We have Esther as the queen. We have a queen who has gained her husband's respect and loyalty. It's an amazing thing in the ancient world to happen. Haman is gone forever. He is utterly defeated. Somebody needs to go woohoo at that point. <laughs> Corruption has been rooted out. Evil has been overcome. And Mordecai is promoted to be the prime minister. The Bible tells us four great things there about Mordecai. That he was great amongst the Jews. It tells us that he was respected and loved by the Jewish people. It tells us that he sought the good of his people and he represented everyone regardless of their nationality or their belief in that vast kingdom from India to Egypt. We couldn't have a more polarized swap from the last guy to the new guy. The last guy was an egocentric maniac, a xenophobe. And the new guy is just such a beautiful expression of God's grace. It couldn't have been better. But I wonder if you've noticed that Persia was a Gentile country. Why should anyone pay any attention to a Jew? They were few in number. They were only living there because they had immigration status. They weren't natural natives of the land. And yet here we have the prime minister being chosen from among a group of people who had been marked for extinction. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that amazing how God does things like that? When an icicle forms, and this is what was wrong with Haman's life, when an icicle forms, if it's pure water, then as it's added to, it grows into a beautifully clear icicle. But if it's muddy water, the more that's added to it, the dirtier it gets. And so it is with our character. If we are pure in character, we will grow more and more transparent and people will see Jesus in us. But if we are clouded with hatred or bitterness, or if we've got particular 
particular dislike of certain people or certain things, then we will become muddy and more and more and bigger and bigger. And Jesus will be so obscured. That's what religion does. It obscures Jesus because it adds so many obstacles into the equation that in the end we can't see him anymore. We so desperately need to be like Mordecai and not like Haman. So I want to, uh, just for a very brief time this morning, bring this study to a conclusion. I want to leave you with three particular thoughts. And the first one is this. When God wins, he often uses people from very, very unexpected choices. That's the first thing. So for example, King Saul, the first king of the Jews, looked every much a king, a big tall, strapping, strong boy. Bible says he was head and shoulders above everyone else. He was a big, muscular warrior type. And yet, 40 years on the throne, God rejected him. And in a time of absolute national disaster, where an invading army had an even bigger champion called Goliath. God chooses the most obscure teenage shepherd boy, scrawny and skinny. His name was David. Unexpected choice. And he's anointed as Saul's replacement. Who brings down the giant Goliath? The big strapping warrior king? No. The little skinny boy whom God chooses. Think also. To confront Pharaoh. To say let my people go. God chooses a weather beaten, leathered, 80 year old wanted murderer called Moses. <laughs> An unexpected choice. I think so. Would you choose such a man to be your deliverer? I don't think so. And yet God chooses Moses. To hide your spies in a city called Jericho that you are trying to besiege. Where do you hide them? In the house of the best known prostitute in town. Probably the busiest place in the city. And that's where you hide your spies. You choose Rahab. A very unexpected choice. To lead an evangelistic crusade in Nineveh, of all places. God chooses a xenophobic, rebellious prophet who hates those people with a passion so much that he runs away in the other direction. A very unexpected choice. To model grace and write most of the New Testament, God chooses a Christian-hating, zealous Pharisee called Saul of Tarsus. Amazing, isn't it? 
and to be the spokesman for the early church. Whom does God choose? Why, the man who denied Jesus three times in one night. Peter. God chooses from the most unexpected sources. But so often we think that he only chooses from the finest intellectuals and the best looking and those who are sharpest dressed and the best orators. Not at all. He has a history, a track record of choosing from very unexpected sources. God does very surprising things. Have you noticed that? Second lesson I want you to learn today and remember is that when God wins, the qualities he upholds are usually unpretentious ones. Mordecai was such a humble man from such humble background. Esther came from humble stock and became the queen of Persia. The original king-size bed was manger-shaped. That's where the king lay, and he came as a baby. The king of the universe came as a baby. Amazing. God chooses the most unexpected sources and the humblest of situations for great things. God does surprising things. In Philippians 2, verse 5 through to 8, this is what we read. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. He humbled himself and obedient to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Think about that for just a moment today. Jesus set aside the glory of heaven in order to become a baby born to two of the poorest people in the land for you and for me. In Philippians 2 verse 9 and 10, we read this. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him a name above all names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. The Bible goes on to say and to proclaim him as Lord. Jesus is calling today. And he is saying, I've done this for you. He's saying to you this morning, this blood is for you. Will you respond? Will you let go of this religious nonsense that holds us in darkness? And will we embrace the living Savior? Will we take him to our own heart? Will we invite him into our own life? Will we do that this morning? So when God wins, the quality he upholds is usually very unpretentious. And we see that in Jesus. In order to get to that triumphant place, 
Jesus remained humble and obedient. Just like Mordecai. Now listen, brothers and sisters, friends. We're not called to look humble. We're called to be humble. We're called to look like it. We're called to be like it. We're not called to be religious. The scriptures actually say religion is the enemy of God. Wow, that's a strange thing to say, isn't it? Because this is relationship, not religion. This is relationship with a living, breathing, soon coming King of Kings, Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He is our healer. He's the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. He's the soon coming King. He is everything. Only in Jesus can we find salvation. Nowhere else. Humility is an attitude of mind and action. It's upside down. It's when we bring ourselves down, God raises us up. But when we raise ourselves up, we will find it come crashing down. Exaltation comes when we empty ourselves of self. And we allow our lives to be filled with God. It's applauding the hand of God in the life of another without bitterness taking root in our own life. Mordecai spoke for an entire group of people. Some of them who would have wanted to kill him not too many days before were now extremely grateful that they got it wrong because the right guy was in place. The third thing for this morning and our final point is that when God wins, the message he honors is always a universal message. God is not into building empires. He's a kingdom God. He's king. We enjoy the realm. Do we aspire here at the storehouse to become the biggest church in town or anything else? I hope not. God forbid that we should ever want to build an empire. But please God that we should also want to think of others. Interestingly, our prayer for today in our 31 days of prayer, and if you don't have one of these books, just let us know. See uh, any of the leaders, see any of the folks in the church, and, and they'll point you and we'll give you one. You can take one home. We have 31 days of prayer for different things. And today, interestingly, wasn't it, that we're praying for the other churches? just happens to be on day 30. And today is day 30 of the month. And this is exactly what we're talking about this morning. When God wins, the message he honors is a universal message. Mordecai's world had gone from being so small to being so vast. He spoke shalom to those people. Shalom means much, much more than just peace. It includes within it hope and security. It's amazing, isn't it? Isn't that beautiful? Do you know, 
I wonder, uh, I, I wrote this earlier this morning, I was thinking, and I thought, when you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. So live your life in, in such a manner that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. You think about that for a minute. When your time comes to go, the world cries and you rejoice. How many would genuinely miss you if you weren't here tomorrow? Would the town notice? Would the area notice? Would the country notice? Live our lives in such a way that the God within us is touching people all around us. Someone once said in an anonymous poem, it's not how did he die, but how did he live? It's not what did he gain, but what did he give? These are the units to measure the worth of a man as a man, regardless of birth. Not what was his station, but had he a heart? And how did he play his God-given part? And was he ever ready with a word of good cheer to bring back a smile and banish a tear? Not what was his shrine nor what was his creed, but had he befriended those really in need? Not what did the sketch in the newspaper say, but how many were sorrow when he passed away? Live your life in such a way. In Matthew 28, verse 19, our last verse for this morning, Jesus says, and he charges his church, and it's not a suggestion. <laughs> it's a command. He charges his church. And I need to say to you humbly this morning, we're very good at doing everything but this. And see the everything else. That's not what he asked you to do. No matter how good it is, no matter how good your church does things, no matter how good this church does things, if it's not this, that's not what he's asked us to do. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go. He didn't say, send Ken. He said, you go. You go. And make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It seems like today we look more for charisma and externals rather than integrity and humility. But God looks at the heart. And He always chooses from very unexpected places. And so we're going to end this morning. You, my dear friends, in the words of Esther, are here for such a time as this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for the book of Esther. And I pray, Lord God, if there be any in our meeting this morning who don't know you as Lord and Savior in the way I'm talking, let this be the day. Let this be the day, Lord, that the light shines and many come to faith in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.